0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today, my conversation with LaShawn Harris, an assistant professor of history at Michigan State University. Her book, Sex Workers, Psychics, and Number Runners, Black Women in New York City's Underground Economy, published by the University of Illinois Press, is a topic of this show. Harris offers a colorful look at the lives of black urban women who worked and lived in a space between the legitimate and illegal economy. Her subjects are women not previously considered in the history of the working class, mothers, single ladies, churchwomen, hustlers, and partygoers who worked in the underground economy. Motivated by many factors, they sought economic autonomy to provide for their families or individual pleasure and fulfillment. The underground economy offered women a break from middle-class respectability and opportunities to forge complex identities of self-sufficiency and an escape from the confines of new Negro womanhood. Working outside the wage system in illegal gaming, sex work, or as supernatural consultants, they experienced the dangers and thrill of illicit trade and challenged black progressive crusaders and promoters of racial uplift. As entrepreneurs and cultural producers, they reinforced and reconfigured the race, gender, and class hierarchies of black urban life. Here is my conversation with LaShawn Harris. Now let me introduce you to the author, LaShawn Harris. Hello, LaShawn. Hi, how are you? Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Your book brings attention to a group of women that we don't actually ever think about as being part of the labor force. But before we get into the book, tell us a little about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Sex Workers, Psychics, and Number Runners. Well, I'm from New
1: York City. I was born in the 1970s and grew up in in New York City in the Bronx in 1980s and 1990s. And I always had a fascination with underground workers. Um, I had underground economy workers in my family. I participated in the informal uh, underground labor market. So I was a consumer. So I've always had an interest. Um, I was you know, when I went to grad school, I didn't think that this would be a viable topic just because of the unavailability of primary sources and decided to go in a different direction and look at. Black women's activism from the late 19th century up until about the or uh, maybe 1940s 1950s, and when I got out of, got out of grad school, I decided that I wanted to go into a different direction, um, and then I discovered sources on some of these women. But I'm from New York City, and I grew up with these, you know, these different types of laborers around me. And and again, I I was, I am, I was and am a consumer of the informal labor market.
0: Okay, tell us uh, a little bit about African Americans uh, in New York City, the, the period you're talking about, and what was their economic situation? Well, for the most part, the women that I look at mostly are working
1: class women. There are few women in the book that are middle class. But we're talking about women who are working class or working poor. The vast majority of them are facing obvious race, gender and class discrimination. They're facing de facto dis- discrimination. They're also facing labor discrimination. And many of them, the vast majority of the working class women are relegated to certain types of work, primarily housework. So, you know, work as domestics, work as laundries, et cetera. And for many women, this, you know, the informal economy becomes a way to supplement those low wages that they um, are able to secure from formal labor or formal housework. Um, In addition to that, the informal economy becomes a way for working class women, domestic workers to also supplement you know, or even escape uh, um, uh, formal wage labor. But for the most part, these women are facing labor discrimination, and the vast majority of them are relegated to household uh, type of work.
0: And there's also issues, you brought up in your book about housing and segregation and where African Americans were allowed to, to move and be and also high rents. You talk about a lot of different economic issues but besides just strictly the labor issue. So
1: many of them are relegated to, um, really poor, inadequate housing, uh, neighborhoods that are, you know, in, uh, you know, undes- undesignated vice district, uh, crime written neighborhoods, uh, crime written, um, you know, apartment buildings, housing, not, not housing projects, but, you know, apartment buildings. So the situation for many of the women, at least in this, in this book, Um, are facing a lot of, you know, racial segregation, and they're segregated to certain parts of the city um, in Harlem, in different parts of of
0: Brooklyn. What period of time are we talking about?
1: Roughly between the 1900s, 1900s up until about
0: 1939. Okay, now these women, what kind of, you're talking about informal labor. Can you talk to the, uh, for the audience, what kinds of things are you talking about, informal labor? So I'm talking about
1: illegal work. I'm talking about work that is unlicensed. I'm talking about work that may be considered um, unlicensed and also unrespectable. I'm talking about women who are, uh, you know, unlicensed vendors. I'm talking about women who may be moonlighting. I'm talking about women who are fencing and, um, you know, stolen items. Um, but mostly uh illegal, unlicensed, any type of work that kinda sidesteps uh state
0: and city uh statutes. Now the thing about the illegal work you're describing is in your own mind as you're looking at these women, did you make some kind of differentiation between illicit work or what it's kind of shady and crime? What it what is there a difference there or is it continuum? Because some of the I, things you describe seem like okay they're illegal but they're not I wouldn't necessarily call them a crime, you know, like a, a life of crime.
1: Yeah, I mean for the for the most I mean there are those distinctions and there are definitely plenty of scholars aside from historians who do make distinctions. But sometimes the lines between, you know, what is illicit and what is what is unlicensed or respectable oftentimes they, they blur at, at times. And for the most part, you know, for example, if I have a sex worker who is obviously engaging in sex work, perhaps part time on the weekends, I don't. I try not to identify identify her as someone who is a criminal, right? So, for many of the women, I think that these, you know, confining them or seeing them solely as uh, criminals, um, I mean. Obviously, there's some people in the book who are, you know, straight criminals, but I think it kind of, I think those lines often blur sometimes with some of the women in the book.
0: Now, how did you get to their stories? Because one of the things you talk about is the fact that th- these women never make it into the historiography of labor, you know, yeah. with black women's labor and that they've been excluded. And part of the reason that has been given, of course, we can't get to their stories because they didn't leave diaries and letters and things like that. So how did you get to their stories?
1: Well, I had to piece, uh, you know, a whole uh, a, diver- a diverse array of primary documents. But initially I found them in the newspapers. So the New York Times, the New York um, Amsterdam News, the New York Age, sometimes the Chicago Defender would oftentimes, you know, talk about women who are getting arrested for prostitution, numbers running, women who are getting arrested, who are so-called Psychics who may be uh, getting arrested for swindling someone or uh, prescribing medicine to somebody. So I would find them in the newspapers. And initially I thought, well, this is great. I have the story. I have, you know, full biographies on these women in these newspapers. But then I said, well, if the women are getting arrested and the newspapers are telling me where these women got arrested and what reasons they're going to, then maybe I can find their arrest records and their indictment files. So the newspaper brought me to the New York Municipal Archives, which has the indictment Manhattan, at least Manhattan indictment files for some of these women. So with the indictment files, I was able to get their um, ages, their full names, where they lived, you know, who prosecuted the case, the the complainant's. uh, you know, people who were, um, were suing them or bringing them up on charges. And also sometimes the indictment files will give you, uh, why they're committing this crime. The women will say, you know, I'm a houseworker and I, you know, committed this crime because I had to do A, B, and C. So the newspapers were the start. The indictment files and the prison records were um, gave me more information. And then I use a whole bunch of other sources too, aside from the indictment files. Um, I also use the Committee of 14. And the Committee of 14 is, their papers are located at the New York Public Library. And this was an anti vice organization that was founded in uh, 1905, I believe, in New York City. There's also a Committee of 14, 15 in Chicago. And the committee of 14 was concerned about interracial sociability in New York City. They were concerned about, uh, whites and blacks socializing together. They were also concerned about the spread of prostitution or sex work in urban working and middle class communities. So they would hire white and black, um, men to serve as, you know, their agents. And these agents would go to a tavern, a bar, a nightclub undercover and pretend to be john's and they would meet these women and sometimes the women would try to solicit them and the women would you know maybe um offer to perform an act of prostitution somewhere on the premises or sometimes they would offer to take the men to their furnished rooms and then the agent would somehow kind of wiggle out of the situation and say you know i you know, I have to go home, I'm tired, I have to work in the morning. And then he would go home and later write up a report about his encounter with this woman. And in the report, the reports would indicate whether the woman was colored or white, they would give um, a name, at least a name that the woman had was assuming or maybe her real name, her address, what she looked like, how old she was, what she was wearing at the time of the solicitation, and then the conversation between them. So I used those records. I also used uh, 1930s WPA records, not a lot, just a few of those. And I used um, the writings of, you know, black, black and white, but black and white writers and journalists such as uh, Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, Marvell Cook. Roy Otley, and so forth. So I used a lot of different sources to try to piece this story or these multiple stories together.
0: Now, these women are working in multiple venues, and one of the things that you point out is they're not always on the street. We think of prostitution right. as being on the street. Yeah, but you talk a lot about some of this illegal work is happening uh, in, in private residences. Yeah. And and kind of there's parties, there's people, are women are sneaking men into their the houses into their apartments. There's all kinds of things going on, um, which is, means it's not just the street thing. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the, the
1: the I mean, there and and again, I'm not the first one to do that. There's a whole host of historians who um, look at a residential. What they call residential prostitution. And yes, women. It's a the assumption is that sex workers are street walkers, That all of them are. And street walking is a viable way to make money. It's an easy way to make money. Um, it's also the most visible form of sex work, obviously, because people can get arrested. Um, the residential women, some of them are, you know, what scholars call casual prostitutes or casual sex workers, meaning they have full time jobs or other jobs and they use sex work to supplement their income. But they see the home as a place where they can, again, privately bring in clients without anyone knowing, um, imply their trade. And they can do this, you know, a couple of days out the week, perhaps maybe on the weekend. But the privacy gives them a chance to, uh, not be fully open on the streets, right? Um, it also hinders or lessens the chances, chances of them getting arrested. But at the same time, you do have at this particular time, there are police officers who are, who enlist stool pigeons to, you know, follow some of these women and to track them. So some of these women who ply their trades in the house, in their homes are also arrested too because of these, you know, illegal house raids or because a stool pigeon or criminal foreman has snitched on them. But the home gives women, um, privacy, if you will, right? Um, no one may know what you're doing in the privacy of your own home unless you work, unless you're applying your trade in a boarding house where some people, many people might know. But it becomes an alternative uh, location or geographical space for women to practice sex work.
0: Now, we talk about we're talking about not only Prostitution, but the numbers racket. We're also talking about p- women who were involved in supernatural consultations, mediums, card readers, I'm assuming, this, these kinds of people. Now, we think, well, they're just motivated by money, but what you talk about in your book is the multiple kinds of motivations that bring women to this kind of work. It wasn't just economics. There's a yeah. lot of advantages to doing this kind of work.
1: Yeah. So, um Women are motivated and they use their money in a host of different ways too. So women uh, turn to the informal economy, you know, because of family responsibility. They have six sick kids that they need to take care of. They're using the money to send uh, kids to college. They're taking care of relatives. Women who may be from the Caribbean are sending money home. Women who may be from the South are sending money back to the South. So you have these kind of noble uh, pursuits, if you will. There are some women who are using their earnings, um, you know, for 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 church donations. They're donating their money to churches. They're donating their money for race to race reform agencies. And then there are some women who, you know, there are some sex workers who are interested in sex. They like having sex. I think in the third chapter in prostitution, or maybe it might be the fourth chapter, I found the woman who was a middle class. Well, not a middle class. She may have been a middle class woman, but she was a house. She was a housewife. Her husband worked. And she there was no reason why she should have turned to prostitution. But she did turn to um, casual sex work. And I don't necessarily have the the tangible proof of this. But she does suggest in a report that she was, you know, kind of bored at home and she wanted to have her own money and she wanted to be independent from her husband. So for some women, uh, the informal economy gives them a, you know, gives them a chance to kind of break from their normative day to day life, maybe perhaps, um, you know, a boring sex life. Some women see um, the informal economy as an opportunity to participate in exciting urban leisure Um, Some women see this as an opportunity like Madam Stephanie Sinclair, not only just as an economic stability strategy, but to be wealthy. You know, so you do have women who are who, who who do this out of pure pleasure and out of pure greed and out of the desire to be wealthy
0: there's also the issue of autonomy. A lot of this work allows yeah. a lot of women to be autonomous, not to have anybody telling you what to do. You do what you want to do. You set your own hours. You work when you want to work. You
1: sometimes. Pay- yeah. So, yes. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. If you, if you, and again, I, I, I tried not to, I mean, yes, you're right on that. But at the same time, depending on the op- op- occupation, there are women who are confined. They do face Race exclusion. They do face gender exclusion. Some women are um, murdered um, or physically assaulted by um, men within their um, within their industry, if you will. So there is some autonomy, but there's also some, there's also some risk involved too. That many understand and that many don't understand at all you know they're naive about the fact about the type of work that they may be getting into
0: right I was, um, yeah i was going to bring that up that okay. it, there's a lot of ben- there's some benefits yeah. uh, but then there's also some real dangers yeah. uh from from the street and from from vi- just violence from your customers the police uh you ha- we have no protection if somebody swindles you or takes your money or doesn't pay you you don't have a recourse to anything. You're, you're sort of on your own and that's part of having autonomy is you have no protection.
1: Right. So yes, women are subject to arrest, uh, violence, family, shame, community, shame, personal shame, again, race, class discrimination, perhaps intense police surveillance, Um, And also competition from rival, rival informal economy uh, persons, whether they be men, women or even children sometimes. So there are some um, benefits of this type of work, but there's there's also some some consequences. And again, there's also, as you already know, very little recourse. I mean, legal recourse. You know, there's always street justice and someone can retaliate in a whole host of ways. But there's really uh, little legal recourse.
0: What about um, the the the? You talk about it a little bit. The new Negro womanhood, the model, of the respectability, mm-hmm. and some some women sort of going into this as kind of a way to break out of that or challenge it or say, you know, I don't I don't want this. I don't want to be this thing you're trying to make me be. Can yes. you talk a little bit about this? So there's a defiance, I, there's some defiance in your characters.
1: Yeah. So some of the women are clearly. So we think about respectability. We think about this sort of, you know, outward behavior that's proper, a proper decorum. We think about behavior that is supposed to, um, you know, be you're supposed to be a credit to your race. You're supposed to make your family proud. You're not supposed to shame your family. Um, You're supposed you're supposed to engage in in behavior where you you can essentially go outside and, you know, hold your head up high and, and, and be proud of yourself. And many of these women, not all of them, there are some who really blur the lines between respectability and, um, unrespectability, if you will. There are some who are just, you know, we're, we don't believe in this outward notion of respectability, and they define respectability according to their own socioeconomic, um, priorities, if, if you will. And then there are some women like Madame Stephanie Sinclair, who obviously is engaging in the illegal numbers racket, which is an unrespectable and illegal um, act. But at the same time, she is very respectable, right? So she is someone who prides herself on being a lady. She calls herself Madam. She's seen walking down Harlem with the finest clothes and she wants to be respected. But at the same time, she is a criminal. She shoots her husband, this is someone who, again, participates in the numbers racket. And another good example of this are sex workers. And there are some sex workers who really don't care about respectable politics, and they solicit openly on the streets. But then there are sex workers who solicit um, overtly. They don't want their neighbors to know. They don't want their families to know because they want to portray uh, an air of respectability about them publicly. So sometimes with some of them, the idea of respectability is not, it's not a foreign concept, obviously. But I think they kind of refashion and retool and they, 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 they're they constantly remaking. Because I do have some sex workers who are very, they're not, they're religious and, and spiritual. They don't necessarily go to church every Sunday, but they see themselves as very spiritual people. Right. So, you know, how does that play into their idea of respectability? It's definitely not a middle class black woman's definition of respectability, but it is a type of respectability, I think, that kind of caters to their own socioeconomic backgrounds and what they really and how they see their own work.
0: Because it seemed like there were some characters in your book that were very. Uh, outwardly, they were fashionable. They they tried to appeal to glamour. They you know and be respectable in a kind of a glamorous way. But they're also no you know behind the scenes, they're doing illegal things uh, to right. keep up this thing. I, I thought that there was there's there a defiance there. It's kind of a mocking. It's it was kind of mocking. I think what the standard of of a good woman was okay. supposed to be. Now let's talk about. Uh, Stephanie St. Clair and the the numbers racket. Talk a little bit about how that worked and about her, because she was a very interesting, colorful person in your book. Yes, Stephanie St. Clair is a
1: numbers banker. I believe that she is probably the only black woman, uh, female numbers banker to control Harlem's numbers racket during the 1920s and a little bit the early 1930s. Um, She is involved in the illegal gambling racket of of New York City, which is a male-dominated arena. Um, She's always surrounded by men, but she's able to carve out a niche for herself, um, despite the fact that she is black female and she is an immigrant. So she's from uh, Guadalupe. She's born around the 1890s and she comes to New York around 1912. And there's kind of there's it's. She starts her numbers business, um, perhaps, um she was evicted from her apartment in New York City, and she sued the city marshal and her apartment building owner, who supposedly illegally evicted her, and she got this sum of money, I think it was about $1,000, and she decided to start a numbers uh, bank. And she eventually becomes this really big time uh, gambling boss, if you will. I mean, she an estimated, at least according to some of the newspapers, was making anywhere between two hundred to three hundred thousand dollars a year. Allegedly, this was someone who hired maids and bodyguards. She had uh, male numbers of runners um, who, who who helped her run her business. So this was someone who was well-respected. She also, interestingly enough, lived in 409 Edgecombe, which is a prominent in Sugar Hill, which is a prominent section in Harlem. And the people who lived in this building with her, 409 Edgecombe and Sugar Hill, were the likes of NAACP leader Walter White. Du Bois lived in the building at one time. So these are legitimate, respectable race people but Sinclair did not conceal who she was. She did not hide the fact that she was a numbers banker. People knew exactly who she was because she often talked about it. And she also she also put ads in newspapers about what was happening to her and her business and her involvement with the police. So this is someone, as you would as you suggested earlier, who was really defiant in a lot of different a lot of different ways. But she's special because she does use, you know, respectability politics uh, for her own self. And she uses the numbers racket to get wealthy, but also to kind of speak to the issues that blacks are facing during the 1920s and during
0: the 1930s. Was Was there a lot of sympathy for her?
1: I would say yes and no. So the people who loved her saw her as this kind of. Um, Harlem luminary, you know, she was tough and she was shrewd and she didn't take anything from anybody. And they liked her because she stood up to the white racketeers in Harlem who were trying to muscle in on the numbers racket. But at the same time, there's a segment of the black population who believe who believe that numbers bankers are swindlers, that they're con artists, right? And they believe that working class people should not be wasting their money on playing the numbers or or gambling. So you have a segment of the population who didn't not, I'm not going to say that they didn't like her, but they didn't like the idea of gambling, right? That gambling was a bad thing. And especially if you're in a working class home, you're poor and your husband uses all the money, it's like drinking, you know, they use all the money, and they go and they drink and they gamble. So they blame the numbers people, the numbers bankers for um, providing this, these sorts of games to the population. So I think her, her popularity was, 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 was mixed. But again, she was a fascinating person. And I think people like to read about her because she was so crazy. Again, this is someone who
0: tries to kill her husband, like we need a movie on this. Well, well, uh, in
1: 2014, TV One Celebrity Crime File did a documentary series on her. And allegedly, supposedly, Janet Jackson is supposed to do a Lifetime movie on her. Oh, that'll so, be interesting. That'll be good. And, and the other thing is, there's a movie. Actually, there's a movie on her. It's called Hoodlum. And uh, Hoodlum stars Lawrence uh, Fishburne. Andy Garcia, who stars as Lucky Luciano, and Tim Roth stars as Doug Schultz.
0: Okay. Well, another person that shows up in your chapter on the number runners is Ella Fitzgerald. Yes. And now it's like, wow, I didn't know this. Yes. Yes. I,
1: I I didn't do a lot on her because I wasn't focused on her, but I just, you know, briefly in passing, just, uh, suggesting, and, and much of this is through secondary reading. So I have to admit that, but I had read through a couple of sources that, uh, Ella Fitzgerald was a numbers runner and she was a, um, a lookout for a brothel. Wow. But I had, but I didn't, I didn't go any further in terms of digging to see, you know, if, there, if this was true, but I assumed it was true because I read it through a whole bunch of different primaries, I mean, secondary sources.
0: Okay. Um, let's go on to these supernatural consultants who, what kind of things were they doing? How successful were they? Did, was there in the working class community that they're working in uh, a lot of interest in supernatural things?
1: Well, well, two things. So supernatural work, if, you, if we think about the numbers, becomes important because people, a lot of people are selecting their numbers through dream books. And the supernatural consultants are writing dream books. So a dream book is essentially a book that has a whole bunch of different objects listed and then they have corresponding numbers for those objects. So if you dream about a cow or a table, you can go to your dream book and see what the corresponding three digit number is. So if I dreamed about a cow and the number is three, two, one, then that's the number I'm going to pe- uh, play for gambling. So in a way, the numbers racket for some people creates this, um, these other unconventional jobs for people. Um, Then you have dream book, excuse me, you have fortune tellers or self-proclaimed psychics who are, you know, just in the business of telling fortunes. They're in the business of, you know, ensuring people that economic uh, times will be better for them. You have people who are in the business of giving advice on relationships. You have people who are in the business of helping people with their um, their health uh, per se. And many African-Americans during the 1920s and especially during the 1930s are attracted to these different people, especially during the Great Depression era, because people want to know, will I find a job? You know, how will I be able to support myself? So they see these women and men, I don't talk about men, but they see these women um and men as possible vessels into helping them kind of control their own destinies.
0: Now what is the relationship between um these supernatural consultants and the Black Church? Is there one?
1: Yes, yes there is. So the the traditional Black churches like the Baptist Church um, are very, um, apprehensive and reluctant about these people because they see them as swindlers. At the same time, you have these alternative, uh, types of churches and alternative spiritual practices like, like hoodoo, voodoo, conjure. Um, and some of these churches are run and established by self-proclaimed psychics and, uh, clairvoyants. So religion and alternative spiritual practices are very much tied to this type of work. So you can go to your uh, Pentecostal uh, church and, you know, hear the word of God, but at the same time, get a psychic reading and at the same time. The pastor can take your number slip. You know, the pastor, the female pastor might be a numbers banker at the same time. So the church is very much tied to, um, these spiritual women. And then there are some women who are just pure swindlers. They're not tied to any type of churches at all. In fact, some of these women will actually set up churches purposely to draw people to them, they have no intention of spreading the word of God, but their, their intentions are to make money off of them and to get them to buy these like um, spiritual fake bottles of water and also to um, get them to participate in the numbers racket.
0: That's, a lot of this work I would not consider illegal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, clairvoyance and mediums and Uh, stargazers or whatever. It's not necessarily illegal. It's just sort of shady or maybe not completely respectable. It's, it's illegal
1: if you are swindling somebody and it's illegal if you are prescribing medicine to someone because you have to have a medical license in order to prescribe medicine. So in those two instances, it is, it's illegal. But if you want to run a spiritual, um, a psychic business in your home, then that's 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 fine. You're still not paying any type of taxes, right? Um, but if a person feels like they've been cheated, then they can take you to court, and that does happen. Or if they don't want to take you to court, I think in one of the examples I give, there's a man who went to a spiritual uh, uh, medium in Brooklyn, and he had been going to her for I think a couple of maybe a couple of months. And she failed to heal his legs. And instead of going to the
0: police, he came back and he murdered her. He shot her. Wow. Yeah. So, so that's part of the danger of engaging this kind of work, right? Part of the danger, yes. Okay. Now, this underground economy, these uh, informal workers that are doing all kinds of different things to, for a lot of reasons. They're doing it for economic reasons, but they're also doing it. For freedom and autonomy, and you know, ex- a little extra money and some independence, and maybe a thrill, because you talk about some people are just doing it because it's just fun. Uh, some of this stuff sounds really, actually, kind of fun. Anyway, <laughs> uh, they're also, but how do they fit into the broader African American community? And and one of the things you talk about in one of your later chap- chapters is about the fact that th- th- they're you know they're running against this. Uh, uh, respectability and uh, so uh, racial uplift ideas and people who are trying to pro- you know, progressives, urban black progressives who want African Americans to progress and, and these people don't seem to be the kinds of people that are going to give uh, the broader community what they're wanting. So can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, things that were done or to try to control this uh, informal labor and in how they were viewed? Well, there's diverse initially
1: when I started doing research on this, I just assumed that everyone who was a law abiding quote unquote, ordinary middle-class respectable person, uh, was just not okay with these types of women and the types of labor that they engaged in. But I found that there were, you know, diverse opinions about these different types of these different women and the type of labor that they engaged in. So For the most part, you have working class persons, and I try to focus on working class people because I think if we look at middle class people, I think it's already assumed that middle class people are against prostitution, numbers running, swindling people. I think that's a given, but there's an assumption about working class people that working class people are more so acceptable of these types of things. And what I found was that many working class people, some working class people are accepting depending upon the occupation and depending upon the person. So you may have someone who's in your family who's a sex worker, right? And you don't necessarily, uh, you know, you don't like what they're doing, but you understand the socioeconomic background, um, the situation of your relative, right? You You don't completely disown them. But at the same time, there are some working class people who said, look, I don't care how down and out I am. I would never prostitute myself or, you know, engage in uh, illegal gambling. And this is just wrong. You know, so I think there's there's some there's a diversity of opinion at the same time. I think that working class people have been there's this there's this assumption that many of them, um Are not respectable because of obviously where they live and sometimes because of the amusements that they participate in. And when you have people within your building, within your neighborhood who are sex workers, that kind of bolsters or strengthens the idea or the argument that all working class people engage in in informal labor. And that wasn't that wasn't true at all. So I find that there's a diversity of opinion about these particular people, even within the, their community, even within their immediate family. I mean, people don't, there's no clear um, uh, line in the sand about these particular workers. Also, it also depends upon the labor. So if you are a, you know, a street vendor who's unlicensed and not connected to any type of criminal racket, then that's okay, right? Right. But if you're someone who is a working sex worker, a prostitute, or if you're someone who's connected to a gambling racket, for many working class people, that's not okay, right? Working class people are also concerned about the influence of the informal economy, informal economy workers, uh, urban leisure on their children. Because remember, African Americans are living in the same Neighborhoods. They live in the same building, sometimes regardless of their, mostly regardless of their socioeconomic class backgrounds. So people don't want their children to be exposed to uh, opium dens or drug dens or prostitution uh, resorts. So for many of them, their disdain for these people has to do with um, the the deterioration of of their neighborhoods, but also the possible influence of this type of scenery on their children.
0: What was some of the community activism that was working against this urban vice and informal labor you have a whole chapter that you talk about it. What kinds of, was there organized uh, ways to try to eradicate this?
1: So I found community uh, letters. So people are writing even family members of sex workers and, Numbers, uh, runners. They're writing letters to the NAACP about what's going on in their neighborhood and about what's going on in their buildings. They're writing letters to, um, the, you know, Manhattan district attorney. They're writing letters to police saying, can you come and please break up this gambling den, uh, that's around the corner? Can you come and please break up this prostitution house? Uh, Can you please come in and arrest this woman who's always outside on the stoop with hardly anything on? So they're writing complaint letters. They're also uh, forming um, neighborhood community, like community grassroots uh, associations. And I was really concerned about really talking about those organizations, because, again, those organizations really haven't been talked about and a lot of people don't know about different community organizations and how some of the organizations are really concerned about, you know, neighborhood improvement, building improvement, their immediate surroundings. And some of the people who are connected to these kind of grassroots community um, uh, projects and organizations are not necessarily connected to like the NAACP or the Urban League. These are people who are concerned about a block or a couple of blocks, or a couple of buildings. And oftentimes what we're seeing with these organizations, and I think I only identify a few, they're having these like neighborhood cleanups, they're monitoring people, you know, kind of spying on people. Um, they're also, you know, again, writing letters to the police. And unfortunately, sometimes their actions don't culminate into, the end of, you know, vice rackets in their buildings or in their communities, but they may culminate into like, you know, local arrests of a person or getting a person kicked out of the building. How does,
0: uh, how does this dovetail with the white establishment? Isn't the presence of this informal labor in the black community serve as a way to say, see, uh, African Americans are a plague. There's a problem. We, you know, we're, they're never going to advance. This is why we need to keep them segregated because they're they're prone to these kinds of things. What was the racial, the cross racial pol- politics of this? For
1: sure. I mean, that's one way to look at it. I mean, of course, that any type of you know black pathology, criminality will bolster um, You know, the argument that uh, that urban blacks are a threat to white civil- civilization or to, you know, urban white communities at the same time, you know, you still have you still have vice rackets that are happening in white neighborhoods in white immigrant neighborhoods and also white police officers are also taking part in some of the things that are happening in these black neighborhoods. But this, um, the whole issue of black criminality is used to uh, surveil black people and to surveil black women in particular. But this is happening all across the city. But we know that the arrest rates of blacks are much higher than the net of whites. So I think on one hand, uh, people who are um, racist. Uh, working class, middle class whites will use this as an example to say these people do need to be segregated. But there are white reformers who are seeing the same type of thing happening in white uh, neighborhoods and especially in immigrant uh, communities in lower Manhattan. Uh, like what
0: the Irish or. Right. Irish, Italian, same thing. OK, so did you I know that you focused in on New York New York City but did you do any comparative work did you see uh, this kind of pattern maybe in Chicago Uh, I didn't
1: I I wasn't I I didn't I didn't look for that but there are books on it like Cynthia Blair who's at the University of Chicago I that may be wrong she may be at the University of Illinois at Chicago she has a book on prostitution in um in Chicago and the work of Callie Gross, who has a book on black women, black female criminality in Philadelphia. So as I was going through my secondary readings on black women and crime and, you know, um, unlicensed labor, I was turning to those different texts for some comparative models on how to structure the book. But as I was incorporating uh, some of my primary sources, I wasn't specifically looking at any other um, cities to incorporate into the book.
0: I'm going to backtrack a little bit. We were talking about prostitution. Two things: Billy Holiday. Yeah. She was in there too, which yeah. I love. Like, she's in there. And the other thing was the idea of this cross uh, cross racial uh, prostitution. You know, black, white men who want black prostitutes for a variety of reasons. This whole thing, this kind of kinky sex sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, how much is that? How much of their of their of their customers in in your in Harlem or where you're dealing with? Were actually white men coming in for for black women?
1: You know, I don't know. That's a hard question, right? So I found that there were some black women who were running uh, interracial uh, sex houses with other white women or with white men, and they entertained black and white men. And then I found that there were some black women who only catered to black men, um, and they catered to black men because they were afraid that maybe perhaps some white men were, you know, undercover police. They were afraid of arrests. They were really skeptical, skeptical about whites in their communities and in their neighborhoods. And then there were black women who solely wanted white men because they believed that white men were easier to dupe and that white men would be white men would will be willing to pay more for sex. So in terms of the clientele, um, it's a that's a hard question. That's a hard question to kind of kind of tackle. But I would say that you know some of these black women are just equal opportunity. You know they they want any they want everybody. You know
0: even uh, Puerto Rican men or Asian men. Okay, so can you talk a little bit about what you what did you learn about this community when you first started? and you went into it, What? What did you change your mind about anything? Did you learn some things? What? What is the thing that really stuck with you and that you would like maybe for the reader to take away and learn from this book? Because I thought the book was very colorful and just full of really interesting things, a world that, of course, I've never been close to. So, uh, And I think a lot of readers uh, are fascinated by what, what you've got to say here.
1: I thought initially when I was doing this work, the only thing that I was focused on was, the benefits, you know, what did women get out of this, that this is a great opportunity for working class women. This is a great opportunity for unemployed women. This is a great, uh, you know, um, underground work is a great thing for black women to supplement their wages. So I only saw the benefits in doing this type of work. Um, I only saw women or I only imagined women, you know, looking at informal work as a way to feed their families, as a way to, you know, um, tackle unemployment, as a way to, um, you know, kind of tackle, you know, death of a spouse or, you know, the common law husband left them. But then I discovered again, that there were some consequences to this aside from arrest, but there were you know, women who were ashamed of themselves for what they did. There were women who were, you know, disowned by their families. And then I discovered that women go into different types of work, not necessarily for quote unquote noble pursuits. That some of these women are going in there for, you know, sexual pleasures, you know, personal social desires, um, to get wealthy. It's not just about taking care of the family. It's about satisfying their own personal uh desires if you will right so that's that's what i that's what i was surprised by because i initially thought you know why would a woman prostitute herself and i knew that the time period and i knew that this was a, a a really rough time period for black women but i could not imagine a black woman talking about you know turning to prostitution because she's interested in um you know experimenting with sex. You know, I just assume that she needs to feed her child or she needs to feed her family. So that's, that's what I learned.
0: Yeah. So, so how much of, how much of this uh, is an argument for improving the conditions of legitimate work? It's a, it's a,
1: it's a great argument for, it's a great, because for some of them, if the conditions were great, if there was no de facto jure, you know, racial segregation, If there were good, uh, decent and fair wages, many of them, perhaps half of them, never would have engaged in this type of work. So this is and that's probably that's, again, in hindsight, after reading the book, um, (laughs) you know, I would definitely make that uh, a bigger a bigger statement or a bigger argument. I would definitely say that. So, yes, you're exactly right. This is about improving labor conditions and really something i should have probably said in the book this is about casting a spotlight on the different ways in which race gender and class impact black women's lives
0: right and having to make choices maybe that they wouldn't have made otherwise yes because of the limit of opportunities and only so many ways you you've got to make a living and you've got or or even actualize yourself or even have a have a thrill here and there right right yes. okay Um, so what would you like your take your, the takeaway for the reader to be, what would you like your reader who's reading this book to really think about with this? That's a tough question. (laughs) One that I was not prepared for. Well, I was going to say, I think for me reading the book, it doesn't invoke a certain amount of sympathy and, you know, compassion and saying, wow, you know, do I blame, do I blame these women for doing what they did? It's, it's instead of them coming off as being horrible people doing horrible things, uh, it does evoke uh, sympathy. Yes, thank you. Yes. So, yes, I I would definitely
1: say that I would like for people to look at these women as ordinary women who've really made really hard decisions, right, they made tough and hard decisions about attempting or trying to navigate uh new york's racial politics and many of these decisions were not easy but um they were making decisions and at the sacrifice of 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 themselves and their families i would say you know i would i would like for readers to think about the different ways in which women had to make these decisions and also perhaps look at you know 21st century working class working poor women and the hard decisions that they have, they have to make.
0: Well, thank you, LaShawn Harris. And thank you sure. to our listeners. Thank for, you for tuning in to another edition of new books and gender studies. You can reach me through my website at www.lillianbarger.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger.